You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, your fortnightly podcast on all things defence and strategy. It has been an absolutely huge news week, so we're coming to you a week ahead of schedule just because we've had so much to talk about. In this episode, are we ready for war in space? Lauren Hanley returns to Aspie to chat to Malcolm Davis about his report on the Australian Defence Force and contested space. Highlights from Younger Games, Sarah O'Connor and Lisa Sharlan discuss UN Leaders Week and the Climate Change Summit. But first up, Morrison goes to Washington. I spoke with Michael Shoebridge to get his assessment on the PM's visit to the States and ask, has ScoMo gotten too close to Trump? Michael, welcome back to the podcast. I'm not a grumpy strategist, but I'm pretty grumpy. So hopefully I'll fill in for Marcus or your other fellow grumpy strategists just fine. I did want to speak to you because our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is over in the States. My interpretation of the news so far is that there was a a Donald Bradman joke and a Babe Ruth (laughs) (laughs) reference that kind of fell a little flat um, in my interpretation, but I might be wrong. But I was interested, did Scott Morrison get a bit too close to Trump while he was over there? What was your read of the visit? Well, I think Scott Morrison worked out before the trip where he couldn't, couldn't agree with Donald Trump. And that's a necessary thing on a visit to a great power, whether you're going to Washington, DC, Beijing, Delhi, Uh, or uh, Jakarta or one of the other important partners that Australia has. But you're right, spending too much time with Donald Trump is risky. Uh, But I think Scott Morrison has managed this uh, pretty well. It's been a bit hokey, as you say, (laughs) over the visit with lots of invocations of, you know, 100 years of mateship, uh, references to veterans, keeping our word, Mm. and that funny little cultural translation moment Mm. where Scott Morrison was compared by uh, Mr Pratt to uh, Donald Bradman of job creation and it had to be translated to the Babe Ruth of job creation for for Mr Trump. And neither roll off the tongue quite well, really. Not really, and (laughs) neither of them really created a lot of jobs. <laughs> but anyway, I suppose the the key thing though is the visit has shown that Australia is in alliance with the US because mm-hmm. it's in our national interests, mm-hmm. and that's ever more so as the Chinese state under presidency is increasingly using its military, technological, economic, and cyber power. And I think we saw the fundamental values mentioned a few times. You know, free, but the the US and Australia share freedom of speech, rule of law, and market economics. So if we're talking about our national interests, I mean, what about about the Iran of it all? How did we go in terms of what's happening and unfolding in Iran and what we're committing to? Well, that's where uh, Scott Morrison did carefully distinguish Australian policy where our interests don't overlap neatly with those of the Trump administration. Uh, he was quiet in noting that Australia is happy to protect freedom of navigation in the Straits of Hormuz because that protects Australia's and others' energy supplies. But he was very careful in not being drawn into any nascent US-led coalition to confront Iran more broadly. And that's probably been easier because the US hasn't really begun to make any case for any such multinational campaign or coalition beyond work to increase um, sanction pressure on Mm. Iran. Obviously, this visit is going to be watched carefully by a lot of people, but including Beijing. How do you think the visit has gone down in Beijing? I don't think it'll be a surprise in one way because 
Beijing knows how deep the Australia-US alliance is, um, so that that won't be new news to them. But I think that there might be a little uneasiness in two ways. Uh, the first one is that the visit starts to break that binary about uh, Australia's strate- strategic um, relationship is with America, but our economic relationship with is with China because the visit had a big focus emphasising and deepening the economic relationship between Australia and the US. And for all its hokiness, the visit to the Pratt paper factory really demonstrated that. Uh, and that starts to break down that simplistic and wrong public debate here in Australia about China's economics and America is security. It turns out America is security and economics. Mm. So I, I think that will make them uneasy. And then the other thing is the Chicago speech, but, well, we can talk about that in, in a bit more depth uh, a bit a bit later. Mm. And so considering their uneasiness, wouldn't they be thinking about having their own visit? I mean, when was the last time an Australian Prime Minister visited Beijing? And I mean, likewise, when was the last time President Xi visited Australia? Well, Malcolm Turnbull is the last Australian Prime Minister to visit China, and that was in 2016. And President Xi visited Australia in 2014, late 2014. In fact, he addressed both houses of parliament at that time in much happier times. I suppose what's happened since then, though, is important. Uh, And since then, Xi uh, has used uh, China's military, cyber and technological power much more aggressively. Mm. Think about the South China Sea, where China's PLA has aggressively continued a military build-up on seized territory and waters claimed by Vietnam and the Philippines and uh, continued deep militarisation there. Uh, Hacking into the Australian Parliament and three of our major political parties, uh, as uh, referred to by the Prime Minister in February this year, and growing uh, growing Chinese influence and interference in the South Pacific in ways that look set to create the conditions to establish a military presence there, which is deeply against Australia's strategic interests, and then interfering in Australian political institutions, which was the reason for the foreign interference laws passed with a thumping bipartisan majority last year with the ongoing scandals in places like the New South Wales Labor headquarters that we're seeing now. So these are all Chinese state actions that the Australian government has made decisions uh, to respond to. And those decisions in Australia's national interest have upset Beijing. Mm. But what Australian government or prime minister isn't going to make decisions in our national interest? Well, we hope so. So with all of that in mind, is it likely that we would see a visit soon and is a visit fruitful? Well, I'm, those changes? I'm not sure we will see a visit soon because I'm not sure who would get what out of it. Mm. Z wants the, would want any visit to be entirely on his terms. Yeah. And you've heard all of the hand-wringing about the political relationship with a whole lot of pro-Chinese state advocates in Australia saying uh, Scott Morrison needs to reset the tone. It's all about the tone and the vibe and Mm. the language. Well, it's not, actually. It's all about diverging uh, interests between the Chinese state and Australia. And these strategic differences are just becoming clearer. Mm. So if Xi wants a visit that is predicated on the Australian Prime Minister apologising for making decisions that are deeply in our national interest, then I think he's going to be out of luck mm. and that's a good thing. However, I think the ball is actually in Z's court on this. Mm. Um, he has a lot of talking points about he wants a, a relationship of mutual respect. Well, Australia is one of China's key economic partners, $215 billion two-way trade, mm. up 
over the time that Scott Morrison has been Prime Minister from about $195 billion to $215 billion. So for all the hand-wringing about the trouble, the economic relationship has grown over this time. So the ball is in Z's court. Um, he needs to live up to his words about wanting a mutually respectful relationship he would show that respect by issuing an invitation. Something you spoke about in previous podcasts that I just hadn't really heard before with a lot of the narrative surrounding our relationship with China is that it is a two-way partnership from an economic point of view and that Australia probably has a lot more leverage than we talk about having. So it's definitely stuck with me since your last podcast. I will go back to the Chicago speech that you mentioned earlier. Has Morrison joined Trump's trade war with China? No, he hasn't. So there's been some reporting about this as if he has sided with Trump in the US-China trade dispute. But no, uh, if you read what the Prime Minister actually said in Chicago, he's actually in very good company with every other G20 national leader or treasurer or finance minister about the need for the WTO reform to occur to address structural Chinese uh, policies and practices that are affecting lots of the world economies. Mm. And so he's he's lined up with that broad international leadership uh, rather than siding on either side of the narrower trade dispute um, with, with China. And it's all about, uh, in his speech, uh, the Prime Minister recognised that Chinese state policies like intellectual property theft, forced intellectual property transfer, uh, cyber theft and protection of national champions from foreign competition, which has resulted in companies like Huawei having a global price advantage. Mm. These are all against many countries' interests and those policies are in the hands of President Xi to change. Well, thank you so much for your time on the podcast, Michael. I probably wasn't grumpy enough, but I'll do better next time. Well, I've done my best to make up for that. (laughs) Thanks for the chat. Thanks, Michael. This week marked one of the biggest events on the diplomatic calendar, the United Nations General Assembly's Leaders Week. Sarah and Lisa discuss the week of diplomacy on steroids. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Today we're going to tackle Leaders Week. Now, in your recent strategist piece, you referred to it as diplomacy on steroids. Can you give us an idea of what we can expect from Leaders Week and what the... No, it's it's great to be here. Uh, Look, I think for anyone who's had the experience of being in New York in this particular week, uh, working for government, it's probably one of the most chaotic weeks in the UN's calendar. Uh, I know when part of the reason that Genevieve and I put that piece together is we've both had that experience working at the Australian Permanent Mission. uh, And we thought it would be interesting just to to kind of have a look at what that that means and and what some of the challenges are that not only are facing sort of Australia, but the international community. Uh, So as you've alluded to, you know, you do have the main events where countries are delivering their national statement, but a lot of the activities happening in the margins of that at hundreds of different side events that are taking place. Uh, you've got high-level summits like the Climate Summit that we, we saw on the Monday of this week um, that's received quite a bit of attention that we might come back to. You've also then got, uh, because you have so many heads of government heads of state, foreign ministers, other ministers in town. Um, There's attempts to make sure that they're all having different bilateral meetings that are taking place at the time. Uh, You've got civil society engaged in different events. You've got parts of Manhattan shut down, particularly whenever there's a US presidential motorcade. So let's just say um, there's a lot of diplomacy that um, people are hoping will take place. Whether or not there's there's a lot of um, action and follow-up from that, I think is always the, the key to monitor going forward. 
that was what I was going to say. Is there more talk than it, there is actual action? Because as you mentioned, we've got the climate summit and Scott Morrison, it's his introduction to the UN General Assembly. He's going to have, he just had his first national statement. So he addressed climate change in his national statement, but despite being in the US, he's actually not going to the Youth Climate Summit. Now, do you feel that his choice not to go is going to appear negative to our Pacific partners, especially when he's gone into the UN Gen- General Assembly to talk about the Pacific Step Up program. I mean, climate change is so pivotal for them. Should he have actually been in attendance? Look, I think that's that's probably a, a fair question and one that's received quite a bit of commentary in the media uh, here in Australia. There's a couple of things. I think climate change certainly has had a, a focus at this UN General Assembly. It's not the first time, but I think there is a real growing awareness that this is an issue that needs to be looked at seriously and taken seriously by countries. You've had a lot of advocacy globally in the lead up to it uh, through Greta Thunberg and the work that she's been doing. And certainly I think the statement that she delivered at the climate um, summit has garnered quite a bit of international attention to the point that it has prompted reactions from leaders such as Trump, um, statements also from our prime minister as well. So you've had quite a bit of attention in the lead up to this. And I think usually um, when a leader or a head of government or a minister is in town, you know, there's certainly attention on whether they're attending some of those high level events. So I think, you know, there will be some um, assessments drawn from that. People were will perceive whether Australia is as interested or committed. And I think it's also important to note that you have had the Secretary General, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, in the lead up to that summit, be, be quite blunt about whether or not countries had commitments or pledges to make and whether or not they would have speaking slots to be able to announce some of the things that they were doing. And again, I think that reflects to, to some of the approach perhaps that Australia has been taking in terms of it being able to engage in that particular platform. I think something that was perhaps interesting was um, that even though Trump had indicated he wasn't going to go to that summit, that he did in fact, I think, drop by the summit, which by no means reflects anything, I think, in terms of a a change in approach um, for the US. But I think it was just interesting that he decided to make an appearance at at the event, given the amount of attention that was was garnered on it. As I mentioned, it was Scott Morrison's first national statement before the General Assembly. Do you have any key takeaways from that? So you're quite right. Last night, um, the Prime Minister delivered um, his his first national statement as, as part of the, the opening of the General Assembly. I think a few of the things, so when, when Genevieve wrote our piece uh, earlier this week, you know, I think we expected that he'd touch upon some of the, the same themes that we saw from the Foreign Minister last year, the importance of the rules-based global order, Australia's role in the UN, and he certainly did that in the opening to the statement yesterday. He referred to, um, you know, the importance of liberal democratic values. Um, so I think these are all things that we would certainly expect of a a statement before the UN. I think what was um, notable is that um, he took the opportunity to, um, I think, refer to, you know, the fact that Australia was doing its bit on climate change. And I think that's an interesting audience in terms of, um, sorry, in terms of the audience he was delivering it to. It was quite an interesting approach to the statement given some of the the reservations perhaps that some other member states have about Australia's approach to climate change. It was quite, um, I think, you know, more of a defensive approach to the way to say Australia is doing its bit and contributing, as opposed to perhaps, you know, perhaps we need to be looking at how we can be harnessing this and doing it more in contrast to some of the other statements. And I think 
that presents a challenge when, you know, some countries in the Pacific, for instance, of, um, you know, for instance, I think Fiji has already delivered its statement and was talking about the importance of phasing out coal and things like that. So I think, you know, as, as a number of commentators have noted, you know, trying to match Australia's domestic policy with its international approach to some of these issues is going to be an ongoing challenge. And even more so in a, in a global environment where we're trying to have discussions about how collectively to address a challenge such as climate change. I think the thing that was probably more notably absent was probably reference to some of the other conflict situations we see around the globe. Uh, we certainly didn't see a reference to perhaps some of the human rights challenges that we're seeing emerging in some contexts. Now, uh, in fairness, there's only so many things that you can cover in a national statement, but I think those are things that Australia has an interest in in speaking to and referring to in particular, and perhaps it was a bit of a, a missed opportunity to frame that. And I think even more so, as we referred to in our strategist piece, to talk about the importance of countries engaging in the multilateral system in shaping it, uh, in in using it effectively, um, as opposed to, um, I think, probably some of the rhetoric that we saw from Trump around the fact that the future does not belong to globalists, but patriots. Um, and I think that is not necessarily a, a viewpoint that Australia would share by any means, because we've actually benefited quite significantly from the multilateral system, and hopefully we will continue to do so in the future. Well, exactly. Even um, the Prime Minister touched on how important the UN was to the multilateral system or to the rules-based system, which completely contradicts the behaviour of the US, one of our greatest allies, which then you see China responding. And China is becoming more involved in this UN system, potentially shaping it towards its narrative. How do you think Australia should respond to China's new narrative in the UN and also the US's lack of involvement it's, it's certainly, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge that we've seen play out this week in terms of statements about uh, China's role, uh, particularly in terms of whether it's a developing or a developed country, as we've heard from the Prime Minister um, this week in particular. In the context of the UN, and I think in fairness, you need to acknowledge that perhaps sometimes the, the statements before the General Assembly aren't always the best platform for some issues, but they do provide an opportunity. And I think this sets up some of the challenge for Australia about talking about some of these issues, um, because we are still trying to figure out our, our narrative and, and where we sit. The foreign policy white paper that was um, Australia's foreign policy white paper of 2017 set out quite clearly that the multilateral system benefits from US engagement. And I would add to that US engagement in a way that shapes the system and, and you know protects human rights and all these things that we've come to expect from the UN. And for Australia, if the US is stepping back, if it no longer wants to be on the human rights, stepped out, it's withdrawn from the Human Rights Council, uh, if it's no longer funding certain initiatives, uh, if it's not interested in the arms trade tre treaty, things like that that we are committed to, that presents a challenge. And it's also opening up space for other very influential actors who want more influence in the system. And certainly China's been one of those that has really stepped up. As we've noted, the negotiations around the recent renewal of the UN mission in Afghanistan, uh, there was quite a heated negotiation on the resolution around the references to the Belt and Road Initiative with the US pushing back on this particular occasion. But that's something that certainly China's been attempting to influence in a number of fora in the UN system. I think we've also seen that divide play out even this week. Russia currently holds the presidency of the UN Security Council and it held a meeting earlier this week looking at the role of some regional organisations, but particularly those that Russia and China, um, some of which they participate in. So the Collective Security Treaty Organisation, the Commonwealth of Independent States, the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. So they had a number of the leaders there from those regional organisations, which don't 
always have a significant profile in the way that the African Union or the European Union do at the UN. And one of the things that came up in the statements delivered by the council members, the US mentioned uh, the issue of uh, Xinjiang and the human rights um, abuses in terms of persecution that have been going on there. And because a lot of the debate was framed around terrorism, you had China push back and say, well, this is our way of responding to a terrorist threat. So I think you already have two different narratives that are being set up here. And it's it's not new, but I think it's really becoming more of a challenge in terms of ensuring that countries speak out on these issues. It also reflected in the council environment that there are um, different polarizations, particularly between China and Russia and the UK and the US in terms of how they come down on these issues. And this has been a challenge, not only on this, I think it will continue to quite rightly be one um, that needs to be looked at. But nonetheless, we've seen that play out in Syria for the last eight years. So in terms of if you if you have the US being less engaged in these debates, perhaps mm. not paying attention, taking quite a while to have a US ambassador come into place, perhaps the US ambassador that might, you know, with Kelly Craft there now, not have as much influence as Nikki Haley had, it may mean that the UN is not on the radar in the way that it needs to be. And I think when you hear what President Trump said Um, as part of his statement. There is very much a a focus on nationalism and sovereignty instead of issues that bring us together globally, such as human rights and some of these values that the UN was established for. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Sarah. Thank you. Finally, former ANU research intern Lauren Hanley returns to ASPE to talk to Malcolm about his latest research on contested space. Hi, Malcolm. Great to see you again. So you've just had your piece published last month, Australian Defence Force in Contested Space. Great piece of work. I've learnt a lot reading it already. I was just wondering if you could talk to us a bit more about uh, the four segments you've mentioned and how that, how that would look uh, and how it's going to integrate with the current force that we have. Mm-hmm. So you talked about the space segment, the ground segment, control and the user segment. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be difficult to integrate new technologies into our existing force? Look, I don't think so. Um, I mean, the space segment is new to us. We've never really done that before. Uh, we've always been dependent on the Americans to provide that for us or commercial partners. So we're now looking at the possibility of how to do it ourselves. So that's something new. Um, but the ground segment is is uh, familiar to us. We've always provided ground support and ground stations for US uh, space capabilities. And control and the user segment is obviously the user segment is the deployed forces. So it could be the soldier in the field or it could be the, the ship at sea or the pilot in the F-35. So that's something that's going to be incorporated into those platforms and those capabilities anyhow. And the control segment is the link between the ground and the user and the space. And so managing that link and preserving it is probably the challenge after developing a space segment because it will be the adversaries that are trying to interrupt that link that we have to worry about. And going on to adversaries, you mentioned in it a little bit, uh, you were talking about counter space capabilities as well and how certain states are developing advanced counter space capabilities, but also that capabilities like cyber attack, things like that, are making it more accessible to smaller states. So you don't necessarily have have to have a space capability to have a counter space capability. Mm. I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about that mm-hmm. uh, and which sort of states are developing those, those capabilities. Well, at the top of the tier, I suppose you have China and Russia that are developing the full suite of counter space capabilities all the way from 
direct descent anti-satellite weapons through to co-orbital uh, anti-satellite capabilities through to ground-based uh, soft kill systems, uh, you know, the ability to use re- uh, jamming of up satellite uplink and downlink, the ability to dazzle a satellite in low-earth orbit with laser beams, spoof a satellite, you know, the Russians uh, demonstrated spoofing in 2017 when they deliberately misdirected shipping in the Black Sea by interfering with GPS, and then they did the same thing in 2018 off the coast of Norway to interfere with a NATO exercise, and then it the end of that is, of course, cyber attack on satellites, the ability to use cyber warfare against satellites or against ground segments. And so um, that's at the very top of the tier, The sort of, but soft kill systems are easier to proliferate to small and middle powers or indeed non-state actors. So you could go all the way down to the bottom of the spectrum of having the disgruntled individual hacker hacking into a satellite and trying to disrupt space capabilities. So Australia's increasing, well, you're mentioning that Australia should increase its burden sharing with the US. We've taken a number of steps to do that already. Into the future, what do you imagine Australia's space capability will look like ideally? Well, as I said, we've always done the ground segment. uh, So now is not the time to do more of the same. What we need to be doing is burden sharing and orbit. And that means we need to start doing the ability to develop our own sovereign space segment, whether it's space launch or satellite manufacture, so that we can support US in terms of building space resiliency. There's two ways we can do that. We can uh, augment space capabilities to deploy more satellites in a crisis to make it more difficult for a country like China to threaten satellites with a decisive counter space attack. And we can also reconstitute lost capability. If the if an adversary like China were to use counter space capabilities, then we could deploy more satellites with our own space launch capabilities to fill those gaps. And so I think that's where it's really important for Australia to develop its own sovereign space segment, its own ability to launch Australian satellites on Australian uh, launch vehicles from Australian launch sites, because then we can suddenly start doing burden sharing in orbit, which we can't do before. And how far off do you think that's going to be before we can increase our burden sharing to that extent? Look, I think we could do it within a few years. You've already got Australian companies like Gilmore Space Technology that are developing the launch vehicles. You've got Equatorial Launch Australia that is developing the launch site up in the Northern Territory and also another one, Southern Launch, uh, in South Australia where they're going to launch from South Australia. And you've got companies uh, in Australia that are building satellites, small satellites, cube satellites, that sort of thing. So there's no reason we can't do this quickly and there's no reason we can't do it at reasonably low cost if we exploit the commercial sector rather than trying to do it just like a NASA approach of of a government-run agency. So the space agency is really critical, but it's got to be the commercial sector that leads. And our commercial sector is already growing uh, exponentially, I think we can fairly say. We've got new spaceports being developed in Northern Territory and in South Australia for launch sites and things like that. With the capabilities being developed on the ground, you also mentioned that filings are an important aspect for the actual satellites in orbit and for maintaining space in orbit. Can you talk a bit more about what filings are? It's a term that I hadn't come across before reading this It's it's, it's a vague term, uh, but basically what it means is having control of a location in space, particularly in geosynchronous orbit where we can deploy a satellite and have access to that satellite for information going up and coming down. And it's really about a a, a geographical position in space or a location in in space in geosynchronous orbit. It's also control of the data. And if we don't have control of the filings, then it's quite likely that countries like China or Russia would then have control over that location and they could deny it to us. So it's really a critical issue in terms of our ability to maintain our access to space. 
And how are those filings managed? Like who's responsible for filings and how do they fit in with the international space law? I think it's, it's, it's done so. through the International Astronautical Union uh, in terms of how that uh, access to that location is managed. Uh, it's, a, it's a legal thing that's done at a global level through the UN and it's really in Australia's interest to make sure that we control our essential filings. Otherwise, as I said, other countries will grab them and then we lose access to those. How many states are actively building their satellite technologies at the moment, their space capabilities and their military capabilities? So you've mentioned China and Russia as the mm. big two. Uh, US obviously has had a presence in space for quite a while. Mm. Uh, what other countries are, are building it? Is it this something that the big states are doing or is everybody sort of getting involved? Well, look, if we're talking about military space capabilities, then a lot of states are doing this. Um, but in terms of, you know, counter space capabilities, I think this is this is new. You're starting to see Western liberal democracies realise that space is not a serene uh, sanctuary that's free from geopolitical rivalry. It's a contested environment. And so you're starting to see countries like Japan and France and Great Britain taking this much more seriously and starting to build military space capabilities to, to defend their interests in space. In addition to the US, of course, with Trump's Space Force. But in terms of the commercial side of things, a lot of countries are doing it uh, around the world. And with commercial space, it's not just countries, it's commercial actors by themselves. So the likes of SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic and a few others are starting to become space, space actors in their own right. So it's a, it's a really complex field out there. And what are the implications if Australia doesn't do this, if we don't invest in space capability, if we don't increase burden sharing with the US in space? Look, if we do what we've done in the past and just have a ground-based segment uh, and nothing more, then we'll miss out um, because we are not stimulating the growth of our space sector. Uh, we're not encouraging our space industry to grow, so therefore um, interests will fall away, people will go overseas for jobs, will not be competitive globally, and we'll miss out on that huge market, which is about $350 billion at the moment, but it's going up to about $4.1 trillion by 2030. We'll simply not get any of that if we don't do this. Oh, thank you very much for that, Malcolm. It's a great piece, Australian Defence Force and Contested Space. I'll definitely be reading it again, going over filings, especially in particular. Um, I hadn't noticed how central they were to Australia's space capability and maintaining something small like that. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. Please leave us a review and you can always get in touch with us on Twitter at Aspie underscore org. 